Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're excited about embarking on this study of the Gospel of Luke for the next 10 years. <laughs> well, maybe not that long. But we're excited about our journey into this book. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you that indeed your Son is enough. Lord, and it is our prayer that uh, there is no turning back in our lives, that we look to him, your son, and do not waver. And Lord, we must confess that this week has been difficult, at least I have found it difficult. Things that we have cherished, things that we expect, the ongoing pandemic, friends that are sick, the list goes on and on and you think, this has been a year now of that, and it's like, okay, Lord, we, we must remember not to waver, to hold fast to the truth. And Lord, we know there those that are hurting this morning, even among our congregation, the Stolers who lost a sibling this week, for others who have loved ones in the hospital, we think of them, and for those that are struggling with illness, we lift those up to you. Father, all of these cares and concerns, we ask for a few minutes just to block those out, put some blinders on, and allow us to focus on what you would have for us from your word. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, many of you remember the day you went to go look for a diamond, right? It was the cut, the four C's, cut, color, clarity, and carrot. For some, the directions were very clear. <laughs> it had to be a princess cut, or it, it, it had to be at least a carrot, right? And, and so you went to go look. For some of us, we added a fifth C, and that was cost. But all right, we won't go there. Uh, and, and so you have these four aspects of a diamond that you're looking at. The life of Christ I use the analogy of a diamond because you have four gospel writers. We've got Matthew, we got Mark, we got Luke, and we've got John. And in many ways, they're looking at this diamond, the life of Christ, that is spinning. Each has his own agenda under the inspiration of the Spirit to lay out the life of Christ. I mean, John tells us, right, a latter part of his gospel. He said, there are many things that Jesus has done. I've only selected a few so that you might believe, or we could render, go on believing that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew is a Jew writing to Jews to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And if he is, then he also has to answer the question, where's the kingdom? And so he sets out to do that. Luke, well, Mark, for instance, we'll deal with Mark. He, he, when he's looking at this diamond, he's, he's focusing on discipleship. And consequently, as they're looking at this diamond that's spinning, they're, they're, they're going to tease out events in the life of Christ for the purpose of their narrative. Again, John tells us that. I didn't record all the miracles. I've only picked a few. At other times, things that Jesus stated will be compressed. For instance, when Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee and we, we meet those demons that go into the pigs... So we can say, let the pigs fly, right? You know, into the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us there's two demoniacs. Mark and Luke only mention one. And my advisor back in Aberdeen long ago would say, ah, here's an heir. No, 
Mark and Luke never said there wasn't two. They focused in on the one for the purpose of the discussion that followed the event on the issue of discipleship. Matthew was just kind of blitzkrieging through. And so whatever aspect of this life of Christ is going to shape, and in the Gospel of Luke has an agenda as well under the inspiration of the Spirit. And that's where our focus will be these next several months. 700 and, well, actually, excuse me, almost 8,000 verses are contained in Luke's two-volume work. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and he wrote Acts as a sequel. It comprises 27% of the New Testament. It's larger than all of Paul's letters put together. It's very significant because Luke is the only New Testament writer that takes us from the birth of Jesus all the way to the establishment of the church under Peter and Paul. And so I think it's very appropriate as we continue, we're not even one year old as a church, to dive into this gospel that looks at the establishment of the church and all that it has for us. I'm going to put a little bit of my professorial hat on this morning, so forgive me for that. But I remember reading How to Read a Book. Have you read that book? It's excellent. Uh, Adler looks at how do you read a book? And he talks about you look at the table of contents, you read the, the preface, you, you get a layout of the land so that when you dive into the book you can understand it. Uh, you kids that are in school, you do the same thing, right? If you read a Christmas carol or, or one other great novel of English literature, you're going to talk a little bit about the background of the book, why it was written, who is the author. And that's what we want to do with the Gospel of Luke as well. So in your notes, I mentioned, first of all, is the author, and I've already referred to him. He is Luke. We know from our study of Colossians and elsewhere in the New Testament that Luke was very well-educated. He was a medical doctor. There are several in this room, and so was Luke. The early church leaders in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century stated that Luke was the author of the book, uh, these two volumes, Luke and Acts. Internally, though, we, we see evidence that Luke is our author. When you get into Acts and Luke joins Paul in the missionary journeys, all of a sudden the pronouns change to we. Interesting, isn't it? Also, you do not give Luke Acts to any first-year Greek student. They will short-circuit on you. It is very difficult. It is, it is high Greek, uh, very sophisticated Greek. In fact, chapter 1, 1 through 4, the, the text that was just read is one sentence, and it's very well crafted in the Greek it's a nightmare for Greek students that are uh, just starting out. And, and so the writing style, etc., reflects someone who is well-educated, who understands the language. Luke is a Gentile, and he is writing to at least one Gentile, many, perhaps many Gentiles, to argue that Jesus is the Savior. And we're going to look at the purpose in a minute. The time frame, well, if Luke acts as a, this two-volume work, where does Acts end? Paul is in prison in Rome, right? It's first imprisonment. So that dates this writing somewhere around 62, 63 AD. And again, the, how Acts ends is one indication. There's no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. And, and in fact, the 
future of Christianity is rather uncertain at the end of Acts. You know, one of the great leaders is imprisoned. What a bummer. And you're thinking, what's going to happen to this story? And, and that's intentional, uh, what Luke is doing. But why is he writing? Let's look at chapter 1, 1 through 4 this morning, and let's, let's unpack this. It says, now, many have un- undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Matthew, Mark, and John aren't the only individuals who've written accounts of the life of Christ. It appears that there are many. You would expect that. Oh, you, you were on the Emmaus Road? Tell us. Let's that's, that's, that's jot that sucker down. You heard the Sermon on the Mount? Could you, could you put that in, form, in written form for us? And as the gospel expands outside of, of Israel and it goes into Greece or elsewhere, you have folks that have never been to Israel. So could you tell us the story, kind of lay out the background and lay out the geography, etc. Marshall, in his commentary on Luke, says, Luke was claiming a place for Christianity on the stage of world history. And that's exactly what Luke has set out to do. Because he says, of all the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants, it's one of the same, of the word. Don't you love that? That indicates the centrality of the gospel. That's how they're identified. He says, from the beginning. This is, I won't go to a firing squad on this, but several times Luke mentions Mary hid it in her heart. You can't help but wonder if Luke hadn't talked to Mary so, so tell us about that scene in Bethlehem with the shepherds. Don't know. Church history states that Mary was taken with John to Ephesus, and Luke would have been in Ephesus. We don't know. But certainly he states are eyewitnesses that he had talked to. And so he says in verse 3, it seemed good to me as well because I had followed all the things carefully. The, the Greek construction is clearly stating lexical choice. He's not saying that they didn't do a good job. It just says, if they'd done that, I think I could do this as well. I think it's important. And I, so I followed all these things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you. It sounds a lot like Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century. He starts out the very similar way in one of his works. <clears throat> he says, I've, I've set forth an orderly account. And he mentions not Theophilus, but he says to Epaphroditus. And it was to Josephus wrote that those two works to defend Judaism, defend the Jewish people and say, hey, we're not responsible for the Jewish revolt. That was a few rebel rousers. That's not us. And Luke, in a similar vein, and again, there are other writings from the first century, he's a good historian. And he says, I've set forth to write an account so that I could defend Christianity. And I think this is where he's headed. And notice he says, to you, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus means lover of God. Who is he? We don't know. He's definitely a Gentile. Some have argued he's a Roman official based on the title Most Excellent Theophilus. And that could be, we don't know. The reasons why or surrounding Theophilus, is this a code word for all lovers of God? Some will want to argue that. Others argue no. It is an individual, but it was meant to be passed down among all Gentiles and those who are wanting to know more about this man named Jesus and this movement that followed him. But regardless, it says in verse 4, so that you may know for certain the things 
you were taught. Which implies what? Theophilus might be struggling a little bit. Persecution has come. Things are difficult. Perhaps you even asked that question this week in light of everything. You are on the throne, right, Lord? <laughs> that crazy pastor last week told us from Psalm 11, you are. But are you on the throne? Are you the one that, that reigns supreme? And Theophilus seems to be questioning some of these things. And, and so Luke is set forth saying, no, 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 no. I want you to know, and I love this for a certain, without a doubt. There appears to be, as we study this gospel, you're going to see, I think, several purposes for why Luke is writing. I'm going to give you three, that, and they're in your notes. First, he's got to answer the question, I think Luke does, how does the person and teaching of a crucified Jesus fit into redemptive history? And think about this. You're a Gentile, you live in Philippi. And you hear about this movement that surrounds a man who underwent capital punishment. I'm to follow this guy? I mean, the idea of even mentioning a cross was taboo in Greco-Roman literature. You'll find very little reference to crucifixions because it was so horrific. Domitian will later ban a phase of the crucifixions called the scourging because it's so bad. And you expect me to give my life to this one called Jesus? You're nuts. And if that's the case, what does that mean? And so number two is what does it mean to respond to Jesus? In other words, if you want to know how to follow Jesus, what, what does that entail? There's a text. I want you to turn to chapter 14. And we're going to do a little bit of skipping around today. But we want to again set the scene for this gospel. Chapter 14 there's a segment in Luke that you will not find in any of the other Gospels. Mark 14, we'll look at starting in verse 33. It, it's, a, it's a section on discipleship. If you jump back to 28, verse 28 of chapter 14, Luke says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sit down first and compute the cost? Right? You get the idea. But notice what it says in verse 33. This is what's unique. You'll only find in Luke. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple, Jesus states, if he does not renounce all his own possessions. Salt is good, but if salt loses its flavor, implication it can't. But if it does, how can its flavor be restored? It is of no value for the soil or for the manure pile. It is to be thrown out. The one who has ears to hear had better listen. You won't find that in the other Gospels. Remember this diamond spinning. And Luke is teasing out words and things that have happened in the life of Christ for the purpose of his narrative. And one of the big things that you're going to find as we journey through Luke is what does it mean to follow Jesus? Luke's going to be answering that because that, that's what he's writing to Theophilus. I don't want you to doubt these things. I want you to hold fast to these things. And then third question that he's going to answer throughout this gospel is how can a non-Jew be included in salvation? Think about this. Jesus even said, I came to the Jew first. So the question is, how do we as Gentiles get grafted into this equation? And, and, and Luke's going to answer that as we move through this. 
I wrote, the church is undergoing persecution assurance. How do you explain a, a dead leader in a persecuted community? All this is coming through. And so for Luke, as he's looking at this diamond that's spinning, there is a pastoral emphasis that's being driven into the narrative, certainly an apologetic slash theological agenda. And there's a historical agenda. He wants you to hear this whole story as we move along. I mean, you read John. John's gospel is he kind of meanders through the life of Jesus, doesn't he? He, he gives you a little story over here, and then he, there's a big saying, you know, I am, and off this. And he gets a little, and you think, John, where are you going with this? I mean, even the opening of John, in the beginning was the word. And you think, what are you smoking? It's just, it's so unique. It's so different. And yet, you read Luke, and I mean, he just plods along. And it's, it's very strategic in what he's trying to accomplish. And, and that's what we're going to see. And so, some characteristics. Number one, it's a comprehensive range. As I mentioned, it's the longest book Luke is. In fact, it's the longest book in the New Testament. 50% of Luke, you will not find in Matthew or Mark. 50%. It's very significant. Remember, uh, well, if you may have heard the word synoptic, and you think, what does that mean? Synoptic means seen together. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seen together because they're very similar. Again, I already told you John is doing his own thing. Uh, and, and so when we study Luke, Often I will refer to the synoptic gospels because it helps in our understanding. And also you can see things that our, our author is attempting to accomplish as he's looking at the life of Jesus. So a comprehensive range. Secondly, there's an interest in people. And we, we mentioned this in our journey of those four portraits. Remember Zachariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna is looking at those that are on the margins of society. And I, let me give you a few people. Samaritan and Gentiles. You're going to find a ton on Samaritan and Gentiles you will not find in the other gospel writers. The Good Samaritan. Remember that parable? It's only in the Gospel of Luke. Again, Luke's writing to Theophilus, a non-Jew, saying, how, how do you respond? And how do we fit into this? Tax collectors. A wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? Zacchaeus, you'll only find him in Luke's gospel. And he'll highlight several times tax collectors and, and those that we go, boo, hiss. And they did in the first century, boo, hiss. But what Luke's trying to show is this gospel is for all people. Women, over 40% of the people mentioned in Luke's gospel are women. Very significant. We've seen Anna already. We saw uh, Elizabeth. The poor. You're going to see an emphasis on the poor in Luke's gospel, unlike the other gospel writers. The rich man and Lazarus. Remember that story? Uh, that's in the gospel of Luke only. The Herodian family. Again, uh, you say, well, they're wealthy, they're powerful. Yes, but they're still seen on the margins of society in mainstream Judaism. And you'll see more on the Herodian family in the Gospel of Luke than you will any other Gospel writer. Even look again at the, the Christmas scene. Matthew, as he's looking at the diamond, trying to show that Jesus is the King of the Jews, he has magi come, giving gifts worthy of royalty. Luke doesn't mention the magi. 
He mentions the shepherds, those on the margins of society, showing this gospel is for all people. And so this will be highlighted, and we'll see this as we move along. Another major characteristic of this gospel is an emphasis on salvation. It is a unifying theme. If we turn this tapestry over and we look at the threads that are holding it together, salvation is key. It's mentioned seven times, and it's, that word is absent in Matthew and in Mark. Luke will refer to Jesus as the Savior, and you will not find that in Matthew or in Mark. Again, it's this diamond that's spinning. Don't, don't miss this. And are the gospel writers accurate historically? Yes. Are they compatible? Yes. And there's explanations for times when it would appear they might differ. Well, how do you fit that together and what's going on? So an emphasis on salvation and the Savior. And look at our study of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Anna and Simeon. How many times do we see a focus on salvation? Our Savior is here. Another characteristic you're going to find in this narrative as we go along is prayer. Prayer is seen nine times in the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Nine. I remember one of my profs saying, if the Son of God needed to pray when He was on the earth, how much more we? Uh, well, that's true and it's convicting. Look at Luke chapter 5. This is just an example of where we see a focus on prayer. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. But the news about him spread even more, and larger crowds were gathering to hear Jesus and to be healed of their illnesses. So he started writing books and selling t-shirts. No. Look what Jesus does. I mean, this is the Son of God. It says he withdrew frequently to the wilderness and what? Prayed. Wow. Nine times critical points in the life of Christ, you will find Jesus praying in the Gospel of Luke. And in Acts, the birth of the church, prayer is explicitly or implicitly mentioned in every chapter. So Luke, as he pens this narrative and he talks about what does it mean to follow Jesus, prayer is vital to the life of the believer and the role of the Spirit. The Gospel of John and the Gospel of Luke highlight the Holy Spirit more so than any of the other Gospel writers. We've seen the role of the Spirit earlier in chapters 1 and 2. Look at chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. We, we just come out of the genealogy list in chapter 3. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And again, you're going to see this throughout the narrative. You see it in Acts in the second volume is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life not only of Jesus, but also the church. It's directly related. Another interesting emphasis within the narrative is joy. We saw this, remember when John leaped in the womb of his mother, the presence of Mary, who had just uh, conceived Jesus. Praise is mentioned numerous times in chapter 1 of giving joy, but it's also seen at the end of the book. Turn to chapter 24. Let's look at this, Luke 24. 
It says, Jesus led them as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. This is verse 51 of the end of the book. Now during the blessing, he departed and was taken up into heaven. So they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There it is. Joy is peppered throughout not only Luke's gospel, but also the book of Acts. Joy is seen in the midst of even their suffering, isn't it? And you say, what a strange way to end your second volume with Paul in prison. But it's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about the gospel going forth. And that's why we can rejoice. And that's why these disciples can rejoice here as Jesus ascends into heaven. And that's going to be seen throughout the narrative. There's also an issue about discipleship and overcoming the hindrances of discipleship. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Let me show you what I mean by this. And we'll, again, we'll see this several times in Luke's gospel. He will contain, or he includes, information you won't find in the other gospels. And a lot of the information he contains deals with what does it mean to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, someone just said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, the first two that state they want to follow will find in other gospel writers, but not the third. But let me just read through the whole section. Jesus said to him, Foxes have dens and the birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another, Follow me. But he replied, Here's the second one, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. This is so, this is like fingernails across the blackboard in this culture. You were expected to care for those uh, who are passing away. You were expected to be there at the funeral. And this is horrific. And we'll get to a minute, why would Jesus say this? But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And it's the third one you'll not find in the other gospel writers. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to them, I mean, that's a reasonable request. It's what Elisha asked of Elijah, and Elijah permitted him to do so, right? First Kings. But Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is Jesus stating here, and what is Luke trying to highlight in his narrative in the relationship of discipleship, which again, we're going to see, turn the tapestry over, it's one of the threads that's woven through not only Luke, but Acts, is first of all, there's an urgency with the gospel. <laughs> we got to make the most of the moment, and, and, and all the more, I think, even today, right, and where we are. Secondly, it's not you're not to postpone discipleship. There's not this discussion, well, let me get some things together, and then I'll do this. <clears throat> I remember working as the admissions rep for Dallas Theological Seminary back in when the earth was cooling <laughs> long ago. And you would have these individuals sitting in the office, and they would start to cry and say, well, you know, I'd love to come, but, uh, you know, I need to finish out this business that I've been doing with my dad. I got this job that we're working on, and next year I'll, I'll, I'll look to come and apply. I had others who say, well, you know, um, we're looking to have children. We're hoping that as soon as a second child's born or whatever, we'll be there. Or we've got our kids we want to put into college, and as soon as they're in college, you know, I'll look to come study at seminary. They never came. 
they were sidetracked from, from what God had been leading. And it was clear, you, you, some of these, you, clear God was moving in their heart. But eh, I, I've got X, Y, and Z I need to address. And I know there's times when that's true, don't get me wrong. But so many look for an excuse not to be on fire for Christ. Well, if you, if you walked my shoes or, you know, I've got all these things I need to address. And, and Jesus is saying, that doesn't wash. You want to be sold out for me? Follow. And that's the third point is following calls for total commitment. That's what Jesus is highlighting here. And again, it's one of the elements or one of the traits that we're going to see throughout Luke and Acts is the call to be totally committed to Christ. Remember Paul's words or Luke's words to Theophilus. What did he say? Turn back to Luke chapter 1. What does he state? So that you may know for certain the things you were taught. To you young people going off to college, cling fast to the word. Whether going to a secular or a Christian school, cling fast to the word. That's the call here, isn't it? Don't waver. And, and Luke's going to highlight this in his narrative. Well, Hophaditz, that's great. Thank you for that overview. That's wonderful. I could have gotten that in New Testament introduction. So what? Let me give you three things that I think are so relevant as we launch into this gospel of Luke. First, in your notes, the story of the gospel is rooted in God's promises and executed by Jesus. Remember Mary's song in chapter 1? Turn there. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 52. It's often referred to as the Magnificat. Mary's praise. This young lassie makes this statement, which is earth-shattering. He, referring to the Lord, verse 52, has brought down the mighty from their thrones, has lifted up those of lowly position. He has filled the hungry with good things. He sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy as he promised to our ancestors. As I look at the gospel of Luke, and any other gospel for that matter, God keeps his promises and it's executed in the life of Christ. Think about the backdrop of the Gospel of Luke. Right? Luke's dearest friend and probably his hero in the faith, Paul, is imprisoned. The political scene? You think ours is bad. Or the Roman Empire was under the Emperor Nero at this point. Luke's medical practice has drastically changed. I can imagine he would have loved for telehealth. At this time frame, this good doctor is having to explain what this one who underwent capital punishment, or why this one who had undergone capital punishment should be even worshipped. And yet Luke continually emphasizes in this two-volume work, our God is sovereign. Again, I find great comfort when I look at the mess our world is in, and certainly this past week has only reiterated that. The adversity that the church is facing and the longing for the good old days that seem to be long gone. I'm reminded by Luke's gospel, the Lord is completely in charge. It's Psalm 11 all over again, isn't it? The Lord is on His throne. 
the Gospel of Luke, this orderly account that the this lackey I put in quotes of Paul sits down and he pins this. He goes, look at this. Look how God has orchestrated these events. This just, just didn't happen. Our son this past week said his teacher stated, we all know that the world was created by the Big Bang. And I said to my son, well, where, he said, how did that start? He said, well, it was the star. Who created the star? <laughs> How'd that start? Let's just play this game. No, God is in charge. It's not a big bang, the coincidence. One of my favorite Puritan writers is John Owen. And a book that's just come out by Banner Truth or Trust is In Searching Our Hearts in Difficult Times. Listen to these words. It's a little lengthy, so just bear with me. But listen to what John Owen writes. Though we are dead, helpless, lifeless, poor creatures, though we have preserved almost nothing but our outward order and have lost all our vigor and life of faith and obedience, yet Christ's church will abide, stand, and those who belong to him will be kept. Here is my ground of hope. Whatever the circumstances, however many fall, one after another, God's foundation stands. It has a seal upon it. The Lord knows who are His. Owen goes on to state, The sight of so many dangerous evils converging on the church of God from without and so many evidences of decaying spiritual state within will test our faith to trust itself to the promise of Christ. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall now prevail against it. If you find that your spirit is any time depressed by these things and no other comfort is at hand, remember these words are written in the 1600s, exercise your faith on the promise of Christ and upon the sure standing of God's foundation that he knows who are his and he will carry them through these difficulties and land them safe in heaven. Amen? That is so true. And when I look at the gospel of Luke and I see, no, God is orchestrating these events. He's fully in charge. Luke in prison, or Paul in prison at the end of Acts. Acts 9, Jesus stated, Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. No surprise. I had this all under control. We have a gospel that's rooted in God's promises and executed by Jesus. Secondly, the gospel story recognizes that through adversity and persecution, Christ and his followers are exalted. Turn to Luke chapter 24. It's one of my favorite scenes in the gospel. Luke 24, and I will start around verse 19, but let me set the scene for you. Jesus is walking. This is this post-resurrection appearance, and he joins these two guys that have traveled from Jerusalem about seven miles to Emmaus on the road. It says in verse 13, now that very day, two of them were on the way to a village called Emmaus. Again, the text tells us about seven miles. They were talking to each other. What were they discussing? The text tells us they were extremely sad. Why? Because who they hung all their hope on had just been crucified. And then they heard that he had been resurrected, and that didn't make sense. And their whole world had come unglued. They put all of their chips into the corner of this one called Jesus, and now it seems to be bankrupt. 
But look, Jesus, I love this, verse 21. We had hoped, they stated, they're talking to Jesus, though they do not recognize him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I mean, everyone said this was our Savior. Not only this, but it's now the third day since these things happened. Furthermore, some women and, and the group amazed us. They, they mentioned this. They went from the tomb. Verse 25, so he said to them, the music is starting to play. You get this, right? You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. I have a feeling the Lord probably said that to me a couple times this week. You foolish David. I told you I'm on the throne. Why do you worry? <laughs> Verse 26, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? And then he walks through, and I would have loved to have been there, as he walks through the Old Testament and shows how it was all unfolded into the new. But this whole idea of Christ's suffering, it's, it's, an, it's a vital ingredient to God's plan. I wrote down three things. Suffering of Christ ensures our salvation. The cross serves as the supreme manifestation of God's love and a demonstration of ability to keep his word and fulfill his plan. Remove suffering and you have no redemption. It is through suffering, namely the cross, that love and justice meet on our behalf. Secondly, Christ's suffering brings us in union with Christ. Philippians 3 talks about, I want to know the power of a suffering. It's the means for maturity and grace and in holiness. And so we look at the gospel story and Luke is highlighting that suffering of Christ it was for our salvation. It provides us union with him. I mean, 2 Corinthians 12, Paul states, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's exciting. This can't be a better opportunity for the church to show its strength in Christ. Right? It's time for the church to stand, to, to express the hope that we have in this one. And so here, the suffering of Christ ensures our salvation. It brings us union with him. And third, Christ's suffering guarantees our future glory. 1 Peter 4, suffering for a little while in order that we can, what, participate in the future glory. One New Testament writer states, sin and sickness are not the last word, yea. Suffering is the pathway toward the believer's final redemption. And so as we look at the Gospel of Luke and we look at this story that's unfolding, we see, yes, God is in charge. He's keeping His promises and secondly, the suffering is a way for God to be glorified, for us to participate in it. Third, spiritual strength ensures effectiveness, not by the world's standards of success, but by God's people faithfully carrying out the call and mission of God. And just look at the stories we've already examined. Anna, talk about someone on the margins of society an elderly widow, what does she have to offer society in the first century? Yet she's faithfully serving. 
And we're going to see that from the parable of the prodigal son that's only found in Luke to the encounter of wee little Zacchaeus. We find individuals who recognize their own depravity, their own sin, their own shortcomings, the need to repent and turn to Christ and the willingness to serve the Lord no matter the cost. In his book, A Theology of Luke Acts, Lucan scholar Daryl Bach writes, Luke Acts tells the story of God working through Jesus in the provision of a new era of promise, a spiritual enablement so that the people of God can be the people of God in the midst of a hostile world. Then Bach writes, it's a message that still fits the church today. This is what we desperately need. We need to see the need to follow our Savior no matter the cost. And Luke's going to highlight this time and time again. Again, go to the end of the book, Luke 24. What'd they do? They didn't wring their hands. This has got to be over as Jesus departs. I mean, after all, put yourself in those disciples' shoes as, or sandals as Jesus ascends. When I think about it, those who plotted their leader's death are still in power. Pontius Pilate, that louse, is still serving as governor. Injustices seem to be reigning supreme in the land. And yet, what do they do? They worship him. And they return to Jerusalem with great joy and care, continually in the temple courts, blessing God. I'm excited about our study of this amazing gospel. This one that highlights, as Luke even said in chapter 1 to Theophilus, I want you to be certain of these things. I want you to understand what it means to really follow him, to be a man or a woman who's passionate about Jesus. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word, and we're excited about diving into the text starting next week. This week was a bit of a kind of an academic exercise, and, but we need to make sure we're all on the same page and set the scene so that we can observe what's going on. Lord, we thank you for your word. These aren't fables that were written 2,000 years ago so that you could dupe a bunch of people in following your son. No, these are, this is the living word that pierces the hearts and the souls of men and women. This is the word that says we are a desperately needed, needy people. The only means for a restoration with you is through your son Jesus, and it's in this word that we find it. Lord, and then in, we find what it means to follow passionately after you. May we be known as men and women who are sold out to your son. Help us not to look back, but as the song that we sang earlier, we have decided to follow you. No turning back. No turning back. Amen.